Welcome to my epilogue for looking at Stan Lee's run on The Amazing Spider-Man. Stan returned to Spider-Man a few times over the years. Issues 116 through 118 of Amazing was adapted from an original work by Stan. More on that in a moment. He then took a break for 12 years before returning to script Amazing Spider-Man Annual Issue 18 from 1984. He followed that up. God knows why, scripting Web of Spider-Man Annual 6 and Spectacular Spider-Man Annual Number 10 in 1990. This was part 2 and 3 of Spider-Man's Totally Tiny Adventure, which I won't be wasting my time with. Something else worth mentioning, but also I won't be spending a lot of time on, is the comic book adaptation of Spider-Man from 2002, which Stan did with artist Alan Davis. He teamed with Jerry Conway for the Fear Itself graphic novel in 1992, penned a notable work for Spectacular Spider-Man Special Number 1 in 1995, one of the rare times post the 70s he was credited as writer, not simply scripter, and the one-shot bookshelf format Spider-Man Kingpin to the Death, which saw him back working with John Romita, followed in 1997. Another one-shot, Stanley Meets Spider-Man, came in 2006, and he returned to the main title to work on a story for issue 365 of The Amazing Spider-Man 1993, which was part of Spider-Man's 30th anniversary celebrations. He did the same thing for the 400th issue in 1995, and the 600th issue in 2009. Back to the beginning, though, with a look at Amazing Spider-Man 116 through 118, which is arguably a bit of a cheat. Cannibalised from Spectacular Spider-Man magazine number one, these issues were drastically altered from their original printing, and may be the first example of a serious retcon, retroactive continuity, in Spider-Man history. Given the black and white magazine's spotty distribution, it was decided to repurpose the story to provide three issues of the main series, and give the creators some advanced leeway. It also had the side effect of rendering the original story moot. To make it fit with the current continuity, which had moved on since the original story saw print in 1967, John Romita went back to the original art and removed all the shading necessary to render the art in black and white, but something that would hinder how it looked in colour. He also altered the panels to accommodate the different page sizes between the magazine and the regular monthly comic book. The story was broken into three parts, and significant alterations were made to it along the way to make it seem like this story was being told for the first time. All references to George Stacy were removed, and Robbie used in his place. Some locations were altered, changing them to the men's club, so Robbie and Norman Osborn could be included. Alterations also had to be made to Spider-Man, who had lost his mask in the previous adventure and was using a crappy store-bought knockoff that showed his eyes, as opposed to the white lenses he has in his real mask. This retelling screwed up Marvel continuity as well, as the main character, Richard Raleigh, was seen working with the Jester in Daredevil issue 42, which came out around the time of Spectacular Spider-Man's original publishing. The story is presented in amazing though cannot be flashbacks, as Aunt May is now working as Dr. Octopus's live-in cleaner, a development that only occurred recently. So, 
Either Spectacular Spider-Man magazine number one has been erased, or Spidey has the same adventure twice. The story, as presented here, also makes a mystery of the Disruptor's true identity, whereas the original made it obvious from the get-go. So some redrawing has been necessary there as well, with some scenes being removed and new ones added. All of this added up to saving John Romita not a great deal of time at all. But to maintain continuity, Jim Mooney was brought back as Inca. All of this means that these three issues aren't really a Stanley joint, as Jerry Conway took the burr bones of what saw print in Spectacular Spider-Man number one and turned it into a more relevant and arguably better story. Still, for our purposes, it is the last time Stan wrote in speech marks, an issue of Amazing Spider-Man for nearly 12 years, and as such, is worthy of note. A new cover adorns issue 116, entitled Suddenly the Smasher. A big hulking brute of a man beats on Spider-Man, knocking him off his perch as he tries desperately to prevent two painters on a scaffold from falling to their death. It's a good cover, very nifty, very fun, very pure John Romita. Our story opens with Richard Rally billboards being put up all over the city. Suddenly, the Smasher, hence the title, starts trashing one of them, claiming nobody puts up billboards for Rally whilst the Smasher is in town. I don't know why these people insist on referring to themselves in the third person. He and our wall-crawling hero get into it. It's a knockdown, drag-out fight that comes to an end when Spidey has to save two billboard stickers from falling, and the Smasher disappears. Spidey isn't too broken up about that and heads over to the bugle to retrieve his real mask which he lost over the past few issues. Luckily Randy Robertson found it and took it to his father. Jonah got his grubby little mitts on it and pinned it to his noteboard. It's a nice action-packed intro with solid art. Over at the bugle Joni and Robbie are arguing about Rally and how Robbie gets a bad vibe off the guy. Jonah tells Robbie that Rally is just what the city needs. Someone who will clean up the city of people like Spider-Man. Now I know what you're thinking, and you're right. This feels very similar to what we went through not long ago with Sam Bullet. The original magazine felt very much like a dummy run for the Bullet story. Like Stan felt he hadn't really gotten his point across very well the first time. So why not do it again? Spidey then steals his mask back, much to Jonah's chagrin, and goes about his day. His day involves an encounter with Mary Jane, who's pushing Richard Raleigh as a valid candidate for Murr. Mary Jane is really getting into the political swing of things, handing out badges and buttons for Raleigh, and telling Peter to grab Gwen and be at the Raleigh fundraiser later. He drops by the bugle to sell his photos, where Jonah is also supporting Raleigh by watching his TV broadcast. Raleigh's address is being broadcast live, and when he comes off her, a gangland enforcer leans on Raleigh behind the scenes. But Raleigh tells him that as a strong proponent of law and order, he and his ilk will be out on their ass soon enough. Peter heads over to Gwen's apartment, directly confronts her about Flash and the illicit rendezvous that he witnessed the other day. She says she and Flash are good friends and nothing more, and she just wants Peter to hold her and never let her go. When he does, sometime later at the rally fundraiser, Gwen is wearing different clothes. I'll let you read into that, whatever you want to. Murray Jane points out that they are late and have already missed the main man's speech, but they are just in time to catch the end of Jonah's. Oh, joy. 
MJ and Gwen both seem politically active, with MJ not agreeing with everything Raleigh says, but digging on his sincerity, and Gwen pointing out how many people their age are getting involved in political activism. I'm not going to do a lot of comparisons to the original magazine, but this was a complete contrast to that. In the magazine, Gwen couldn't give a shit, and was only here for the volivants and the dancing, and Murray Jane was the one who cared about the issues. Seems to me that Stan got his characters mixed up, though, something that Conway fixes. Peter's spider sense suddenly blurs away, and he spies the roof fixtures crumbling. If they go, everyone in the hall could die. He takes off, rips out a junction box, plunging the room into darkness, and then tries to web up the ceiling, but doesn't have the time to put his costume on. Doesn't really matter too much. He either fails and everyone dies, or succeeds, but reveals his secret. What a cliffhanger. What a, what a really excellent cliffhanger. Um, creating a cliffhanger that was not there in the first place. The story continues into 117, The Deadly Designs of the Disruptor. The cover by John Romita depicts a youth for rally rally. A new costumed adversary fires into the crowd and at Spider-Man. I said last time that we never saw Josh again, but this looks like him on the cover. To be fair, this is the kind of thing you'd be in the middle of. Peter discovers the supports have been weakened, so this was a deliberate act of sabotage. He manages to support the ceiling long enough for people to get out of the way and then blend in with the crowd, saving his secret for another day. Peter looks for the ladies and ponders the events as he can't figure out the angle. Most of Raleigh's attitudes are apparently pretty liberal. However, due to his straight arrow rep, the mainstream conservatives also like him. So who'd want to kill him? He walks Gwen and MJ home. Gwen is teasing Peter about him having another lady's hers all over his suit. It's actually his webbing from trying to stop the roof from caving in. Whilst MJ is in a world of her own, wondering if Raleigh digs redheads and if Murray Jane Raleigh rolls off the tongue. MJ's got it bad. Someone else who's got it bad is the masked figure on the cover who is royally pissed off. Spider-Man showing up and saving the day has set his plan, whatever that may be, backwards, and thus he enters the lab of mad scientist Thaxton, who, like Frankenstein, has created the monster, the Smasher. The Smasher is nearly ready. With a few minor modifications, he will be unbeatable. Later, at the men's club, Jonah is banging on about Raleigh and what a great guy he is, whilst Robbie and, of all people, Norman Osborne are sceptical of Raleigh, saying that other than his wishy-washy platitudes, they don't really know what he stands for. Norman Osborn doesn't trust the guy. That's a massive red flag right there. Spider-Man, meanwhile, has happened upon another rally rally that is once again being hit on by the mob. Spider-Man intervenes, sorts out the bad guys and meets up with Harry, Gwen and MJ at yet another rally rally. Even as Harry, MJ and Gwen seem to be falling for Rally's rap, Peter remains unconvinced. Peter feels rally is all surface and popular platitudes, stirring up the populace with sloganeering and rhetoric, but little of actual substance. The Disruptor shows up, demanding to see rally so he can kill him. The Disruptor spouts the usual Stanley cliches. He's planned too long. On this, it all depends. And Spidey casually mentions that the Smasher moves very quickly for someone his size, but the fight is over before it can really begin. That night, Jonah goes to interview Raleigh, who is again being leaned on by the mob guy. Jonah mentions that the bugle is behind Raleigh all the way, especially as Robbie is doing a background check that will show that Raleigh is the man for the job. 
The news of Robbie's background check gets back to the disruptor, who demands the smasher be ready to bring him Robbie Robertson. Dead. Or alive. The final issue of this reprint, well, not really a reprint, was issue 118, and Ramita again provides the cover with the disruptor ordering the smasher to smash Spider-Man. Hence his name. Countdown to Chaos opens with the smasher. Um, smashing things. He's attacking Robbie, who is investigating Rally. Spider-Man arrives, fortunately, and there's a large battle as Spidey must save Robbie from the big brute. This was originally George Stacy who was attacked in this sequence, and the alteration in the dialogue means Robbie is erroneously called Robinson at some point. Spider-Man runs away, leaving the Smasher, because he plans on using the Smasher to find the Disruptor, which he does by changing back to his civvies and joining Harry, Gwen and MJ in a Vote for Rally van. They cruise around New York, blurring their message over the tannoy, which, as you may expect, attracts the Smasher. Peter shoves MJ and Gwen out of the van, and then switches to Spider-Man to follow the Smasher to the Disruptor. The final battle is very well executed. There's a rolling news strip across the middle of the pages, not there in the original magazine, talking about how Raleigh is going to win by a landslide, and the strip cuts between the quite brutal fight and the voters. It's amusing that Jonah is picked up for not being impartial in an era where very few news outlets are impartial at all. The fight results in the Smasher, the Disruptor and the Mad Scientist all being killed off. But Spider, who must know he'll be blamed for this, takes the Disruptor's costume off him to reveal that he is Richard Raleigh. Realising that this could ruin people's faith in the Electric, Spidey burns the Disruptor's costume. Turning these three issues into a mystery makes this a better story than the magazine version, but we still never learn why Rally was a badden and what caused it. Nor do we learn what, if anything, Robbie learned about him that he wanted covering up. Nor do we follow up on Spider-Man being a suspect in his death. At this point, Spider-Man is now a person of interest in the deaths of two prominent individuals. Spidey has a nice monologue at the end about how maybe humanity needs myths, heroes, and yes, even martyrs. But this, alongside the Sam Bullitt story, really paints politicians in a negative light. Neither of these stories could have appeared a decade or so earlier, as the comics code wouldn't have allowed it. There were to be no negative portrayals of authority figures because, God forbid, we should raise our kids to question things. And it showed how the times were a-changing. It's also a better send-off for Stan than issue 110. At least the story ends rather than being a cliffhanger. Although, to be honest, very little of Stan's original exists here. If you have both versions of this story, I recommend doing a side-by-side -side comparison, as it's fascinating seeing how a comic story can be completely altered by, in some cases, just changing the dialogue. Amazing Spider-Man Annual 18 is one of the best and most underrated annuals in the back catalogue. Honest, if you haven't read this one, find a copy. It's a comic that crams so much into its 40 pages and manages to balance feeling like a then-modern-day comic and a 60s comic simultaneously. Plotted by Tom DeFalco, scripted by Stan Lee, with Ditko-inspired art by Ron Friends, Jackson Gweiss and Bob Layton, The Scorpion Takes a Bride, but not the way you think, is wonderfully evocative of the past whilst acknowledging the passage of time. The comic is full of conventional nine-panel pages, and I'll wager some of you would think that this makes the book old-fashioned or dated, but it's actually a strength of the issue. 
The story covers so much ground as to provide enough narrative thrust for four issues of any book currently on the stands, yet it never feels rushed. It's the perfect length and pace for the story it's telling. Spidey stops a during helicopter burglary, which means he heads to the bugle with photos, where he learns that Jonah is marrying Marla Madsen. There's more action, excitement and sheer joy in these opening four pages when Spider-Man must prevent the helicopter thieves from getting away than in the entirety of the latter half of the Straczynski run. The bugle scenes buzz with life as the art team fill every frame with the hubbub of a busy newsroom. Stan's dialogue sparkles and he seems really engaged in the material, arguably more so than in the latter years of his time on the regular book. Spidey dropping by to congratulate Jonah and kissing him on the lips is hysterical, but there's pathos here as well. I can't remember the details now, but we learn in this story that John Jameson is in an institution, seriously mentally incapacitated, and the moments between John and his father Jonah are well characterised and superbly written. There's even grit. Mac Gargan, aka the Scorpion, is in the same institution and decides the time is right to take his vengeance on Jonah for funding the experiment that turned him into the Scorpion in the first place. Gargan kills a poor guard who he's lured in, a patsy who he manipulates to his will and then callously kills. We also learn Jonah is footing the bill for Gargan and the many people Gargan's hurt as the Scorpion over the years, as Jonah's guilt for the Scorpion weighs heavily on Jonah's mind. It goes without saying that the Scorpion takes both John and Marla hostage to cause Jonah the maximum of pain, but Spider-Man's there to stop him. However, that doesn't do justice to the breakneck speed at which this issue moves. The drama is offset by genuinely funny moments, the artwork is exquisite, and the story a sheer joy. It is, in my opinion, the best of Stan's returns to the character, lacking the self-reverential humour or mocking tone of some of his later work, and he's aided and abetted by creators at the top of their game. Leighton and Gweiss had a slick sheen to Frenzy's pencils, and in DeFalco, Stan had a proper writer plotting out the story, so there's none of the making-it-up-as-we-go feel of some of Stan's work. At the time, this was a glorious return for the man, Now it's a wonderfully hidden gem awaiting rediscovery. Fear Itself is one of four extra-length tales produced in the Marvel Comics graphic novel range. There was Hooky, Spirits of the Earth, Parallel Lives and this one by Jerry Conway, who is credited with the plot and the script, Stan Lee, the script, and art by Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito. So this is basically a reunion tour for the mid-70s Spider-Man creative team. It's not bad, not really, but I didn't see much of Stan's influence in his story, and given the credits, did he only do half the scripting? The story wants to be what Son of the Demon was to Batman, a globe-trotting adventure in which the heroes, the Batman and Talia here, Spider-Man and Silver Sable, take on a Nazi-esque bad guy, the Kane here, Armin Zola, now reincarnated as a woman just to piss off certain YouTubers, with plans to destroy the world. The stakes are high, but unlike Son of the Demon, which was a really good Batman Ra's al Ghul story, this is a good Silver Sable story, but a mediocre Spider-Man story. See, Sable is a globe-trotting adventurer, but Spider-Man isn't. This this would be much better as a Silver Sable team-up with Captain America or Nick Fury, or even nowadays, perhaps Captain America and Peggy Carter, than it is a Spider-Man one. 
magical Cassidy crystals stolen by ninjas who work for reincarnated Nazis situated in Bavarian castles are better suited to S.H.I.E.L.D. than Spider-Man. It also doesn't feel like Stan had anything to do with it, apart from a few captions. In fact, there's no reason at all for this to be given the graphic novel treatment. The other three Spider-Man graphic novels had a hook. Parallel Lives revealed Murray Jane's full backstory for the first time. Hooky and Spirits of the Earth were drawn by artistic legends, Bernie Wrights and Charles Vess, respectively. But this is largely forgettable. Even Ross Andrew is well past his best in this story. I'd never read this before. I doubt I'll read it again. Amazing Spider-Man issue 365 was the start of a year-long celebration of Spider-Man's 30th anniversary and was a sumptuous main course. After a wonderful 3D hologram cover, the issue kicks off with a 35-page main story by David Michelini, Mark Bagley and Randy Emberlin. This story concerning the final, last ever, honest to gosh, he will never return ever again appearance of the lizard who is cured in this story. Forever. No, honestly, this time it's for real. <laughs> yeah, right. It's also, in many ways, the beginning of the Clone Saga, with the reappearance of Peter Parker's parents, Richard and Murray, kicking off that chapter in Spider-Man's life. It's also the start of Spider-Man becoming grimdark in the true 90s fashion. Stan's first contribution is a text piece all about the story that originally featured Peter's parents, Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 5. Now, personally, I thought that story was a load of old cobblers, but Stan seems to like it, so who might have piss on his cornflakes? There's a great poster of Spider-Man, Venom and Carnage. It's the 90s, Jake. Another short by Michelini and Aaron Lepresti about Jonah pondering the man behind the spider's mask and coming to all the wrong conclusions. I have no idea how Jonah knows certain details. For instance, he knows Spider-Man let the thief go in the corridor. How would he know that? But later on in the story, he doesn't know that the man who was killed is Ben Parker, uncle of one of his employees. But, you know, it's a fun little piece in which we learn everything is about Jonah. There's a Prowler story by Tom DeFalco and Todd Smith. Marvel really seemed to want the Prowler to be a thing in the 90s. And a text piece covering the first 30 years by Peter Sanderson. There's a preview of the upcoming Spider-Man 2099 as well. It's remarkable to look at this issue now that we're but two short years away from Spider-Man's 60th anniversary and look at the changes in the first 30 years compared to the developments of the last 30 years. Of course, the reason we're here is a short eight-page story by Stan and John Romita. Well, once again, Stan only scripted this over a plot by Tom DeFalco. I remember Gwen sees MJ looking through an old photo album and is at once a revisionist take on the MJ-Peter-Gwen relationship and a pointer to the future. You see, at this point, by and large, creators were happy to leave Gwen well enough alone aside from the occasional mention. After this, the floodgates opened, with Gwen referenced all the goddamn time. It's MJ's recollections of Gwen and her relationship with her, and Harry and Peter, so it's fur that it's got some rose-tinted spectacles to it. After all, no one likes to think of themselves as the bad guy. MJ does cop to the fact that she was jealous of Gwen and Peter, which was something left unsaid in the series themselves. And there's a lovely scene taking place just after George died. MJ goes to Gwen to convince her that dumping Peter was the right thing to do, 
After all, MJ says, there's plenty of fish in the sea, Gwen, and you've got all the right bait. And it means MJ's free to move in on Peter. But MJ's nature gets the better of her, and she ends up defending Peter and ultimately bringing them back together. Now, this isn't how it happens, as you, lovely listener, will know if you'd listen to me cover these issues. But memory's a funny thing, and maybe MJ is conflating different events in her mind. Curiously, she never mentions knowing Gwen is pregnant. This is a nice story. It doesn't completely whitewash the MJ-Gwen relationship as being one of besties from the start, but it does offer a new morsel that MJ was jealous of Gwen and Peter, and as such offers a new perspective on things. MJ finds herself unable to look at photos from around the time of Gwen's death, and puts the photo album away. She decides, though, that her and Peter have been worth it, even if she herself may be in danger, and she vows that she wouldn't trade their marriage for anything in the world, except maybe Aunt May's life. Issue 400 came in the middle of the infamous clone saga, in the middle of the enhanced covers boom, and in the middle of the 90s. So it's a real surprise to find a charming and heartfelt character study as the main story, rather than a bombastic 40-page fight. The cover, though, is awful. It's supposed to be an embossed gravestone with the logo and Spider-Man on it, but it just looks like a grey blob. One of the worst of this era's gimmick covers, and that's really saying something, as Bananarama would have it. The main story, The Gift, written by James DeMatteis, without by Mark Bagley and Larry Marlstead, is an Aunt May story, a quiet retrospective piece about the end of days. Sure, the Clone Saga had its problems. Many, many problems, but it took a few risks as well. This is a lovely story, and no one was arguing that maybe it was time May stepped off the stage to allow the characters to move on to marriage and children. Sadly, this tale was undone, as so many have been, in the name of getting back to the same old, same old. Again, this is not an issue if that's all you've ever been. Look at Archie. But Marvel promised more than that and has failed to deliver. It does have the cliché of someone close to Peter dying and revealing on their deathbed that they know he's Spider-Man, but it's handled so well, I didn't care. This is a remarkable story. It's an anniversary issue with no villain, no huge fights, no big stakes, just a quiet, introspective story about mortality and losing a loved one. The Stan Lee story, I say story, but again only scripted by Stan from a plot by DeMatteis, shows a previously unseen chapter in Peter's life, the day after Uncle Ben's death. The morning after has art by Tom Grummet and Al Milgrom. Again, it's May's story rather than Peter's, which is rather fitting, and like the main story, quite touching. The issue is rounded out with The Parker Legacy by DeMatheus and John Romita Jr. This is setting up the Ben Riley story. And if you don't know all about Ben Riley and Peter Parker and the clones thing, it's far too complicated to go into here. But I do have to wonder what happened to John Romita Jr. The art here is spectacular. His recent art is not to my taste. Speaking of spectacular, Stan's next story appeared in the Spectacular Spider-Man Super Special, 
Bit of a mouthful from 1995. It was a 64-page cash grab capitalising in the fact that the Clone Saga was popular and Venom and Carnage were popular, so surely a story that combines the two would be a barnstormer. The gimmick, it was the 90s, there has to be a gimmick, was that this was a flip book, meaning the back cover was upside down, so you had to flip the book to read it and one of the stories. This was part four of Planet of the Symbiotes, meaning there were five others of these. I have no memory of this story at all, and I couldn't be asked reading the main story, or the Scarlet Spider flipped back up for this. Sorry. The Stan Lee story is a ten-pager, and is actually written by Stan. Or no plotter is mentioned, anyway. The art is by Derek Robertson and George Perez, and if you are familiar with either of those gentlemen's art, you'll come to the conclusion this is a really bizarre purring. And you'd be right. It is, however, a great purring. And this is the best of the little backups so far. The cycle of life packs a lot into its ten pages. We start at May's grave, where Peter and MJ are talking about her life and her impact on Peter after the death of his parents. They're mugged, but Peter is so wrapped up in his grief, he simply carries on talking to MJ whilst punching one of the muggers right across the field and crushing the gun barrel of the others. Much to a comedic look of panic on the gunman's face. As they walk home, Peter tells MJ of his childhood and being bullied. It's implied, but not stated, that this bully is Flash, and how Peter takes the bullying until, on a walk home from the store, the bullies deliberately soak their groceries. Enraged, Peter fights all three, refusing to back down and even getting a few decent jabs in. It shows Peter's spirit, his willingness to protect others, and it flies in the face of all these people who insist that Peter was always one step away from being a villain. No, he wasn't. He took everything life threw at him and still emerged as a good and decent person. There's a message in there for all of us. Peter and MJ talk about their love for May and for each other. It's another touching tale that reads like it's the last Peter Parker story in many ways. It's Peter realising that he's paid his dues. He's now married to MJ and they have a child on the way. It's a reaffirmation of May's dialogue in number 400 that being a parent is the greatest responsibility. It's why I really think that had Marvel been able to find a way out of the mess they'd found themselves with the convoluted clone saga and let Peter and Mary Jane have the happy ending, this could have been a good last story for Peter and MJ. It's why, after this, it all felt so forced. Still, it is what it is. Spider-Man Kingpin to the Death was a bookshelf format, square-bound special edition plotted by Tom DeFalco, scripted by Stan with art by John Romita in The Last Hurrah Together. This is a one-shot story that doesn't really affect any continuity despite taking place firmly in the 90s. The Kingpin is trying to retake his position as ruler of the underworld and has developed a formula that makes people as strong as Spider-Man for a short time before killing them. He then sends these people out dressed as Spider-Man and has them start killing people. Bad people, but still. Spider-Man is hounded by the press, and Daredevil teams up with him because he knows Spidey is innocent thanks to his radar sense. However, Daredevil is also infected by the formula and turns on the kingpin. There's also some guff involving a cliched bad guy named Zoltaro, and it all wraps up very neatly at the end with Spider-Man proved innocent, Daredevil cured, and Zoltaro killed. Now, I love me some John Romita, and his art here is really good. It's just not right for this project. Similarly, Stan isn't the right guy to script this. 
It wants to be a gritty crime drama of the kind these two gentlemen pulled off with a plum back in the 60s. But this wasn't the 60s. It was the 90s. John Romita Jr., then at the top of his game, would have been a much better fit for this art-wise. Likewise, Stan is into the self-parodic period of his career, and a lot of the fourth-wall-breaking gags and asides feel forced and bring the reader, me, out of the story. Stan's non-too-serious attitude means the story lacks any weight. He's not taking it seriously, so why should we? Some of the gags do land. His comment that this is a modern comic boot where the female lead keeps her clothes on, for example, is funny. But it's really out of place. Perhaps DeFalco, who can do gritty when he wants to, would have been better writing this for himself. Or Chuck Dixon, who would have killed on this project, may have made it a classic. Stan then knocked out the comic book adaptation of the 2002 Spider-Man movie directed by Sam Raimi, and it's... well, it's okay. He adds more of Spidey's snarky commentary to the fight scenes, which is welcome, as the movie seems to forget that Spider-Man is funny, and lost Macy Gray, for which we are thankful. Truthfully, it's only notable for the Alan Davis-Mark Farmer artwork. Stan Lee meets Spider-Man was a frivolous bit of fluff that came out in 2006, and was part of a series where Stan met his characters. In this one, written by Stan with art by Oliver Cupiel and Mark Morales, Spider-Man drops by to visit Stan, who is baking cookies and watching a rerun of The Incredible Hulk on TV. And Stan helps Spidey overcome his insecurities by pointing out that an entire cottage industry of spin-offs, such as cartoons, dolls, serials and such, would cease to be if Spider-Man quit. It's a nice commentary on just why Spider-Man can't ever really change. He's too much of a cash cow. Amazing Spider-Man issue 600 is another jam session, with numerous stories and funny alternative covers. I say funny. The main story, Last Legs by Dan Slott and John Romita Jr., is actually really good. A 61-page story that manages to balance the usual Spider-Man tropes of action, humour, drama and melodrama really effectively. Some of the humour is of the Slott brand, childish and a bit forced, but the story lands more often than not. Slot's run is basically the Michael Bay take on Spider-Man. Summer, blockbuster fun with action, spectacle and little else. And this pretty much fulfills that mandate. It will prove more relevant in hindsight with the superior Spider-Man story. Then those single-page features, the amazing Spider-Man covers you'll never get to see, which vary from taking the piss out of DC... Bendis and Loeb's contribution, to self-mockery, Ed Brubaker's, to tedious hipster humour, Matt Fraction's page. They fit into the Steve Wacker editorial era quite well. Slightly frat boy, knowing, mocking, and not really that funny. Well, to me anyway, but humour is subjective. Of the backup strips, Mark Wade and Colleen Duran's My Brother's Son is the Best, centering around Ben Parker suddenly adjusting to being a dad rather than the cool uncle. It was off-putting that Ben was drawn to look like Andy Griffith, though, but this was the time period where Marvel went through a phase of drawing their characters to look like actors. The rest vary from the frivolous, Bob Gale and Mario Alberti's If I Was Spider-Man, The Touching, The Blessing by Mark Guggenheim and Mitch Brewster, The Mildly Humorous, A Fight at the Museum by Zeb Wells and Derek Donovan, the setup for the next few months' worth of stories, Violet Visions by Joe Kelly and Fiumara, and Stanley and Marcos Martin's Identity Crisis. This was a weird one. Stan is credited as sole writer, but if he did this, he has a great sense of humour about himself. The story concerns Spidey going to see Dr. Grey Madder, 
Puns don't get any better than that, folks. And Spidey talks about his issues and the many changes he's gone through. Madder ends up seeing a shrink himself at the end. A shadowy figure I think is implied to be Steve Ditko. Madder is drawn to look like Stan and is constantly adjusting his toupee. There are references to the many-armed Spider-Man, Spider-Hulk, Spider-Ham, Venom, Spider-Lizard, the totally tiny Spider-Man being married, not being married, being a father, not being a father, and it all being too much in him not being aware what's real and what's not. I'm not sure what I made of this. It was mildly diverting, and Martin's art is pitch perfect, but it felt inconsequential. Maybe that's the point, just have Stan show up and write a story that has no bearing on the past or the future. Stan Lee passed away on November 12th, 2018. He was 95. Steve Ditko passed away in June of that same year, aged 90. It wasn't a good year for fans of Spidey's creators. Lee was a hookster, a salesman, an orator. He sold the public on the Marvel brand for years, working tirelessly to ensure Marvel was as recognised as the MGM Lion and Disney's Mickey Mouse. There are people who take against Stan, saying he never did anything of note without Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko, and others. Nothing I say will change these people's minds, so I'm not going to bother. Could Stan have been more generous to his collaborators? Yes. Maybe he should have given Jack Kirby a chance to write and draw the FF alone. After all, he gave Ditko plotting credits, but never afforded Jack the same courtesy. And it's clear from this project of mine that when Stan didn't keep his eye on the ball, when he was just phoning it in or didn't have a plotter as good as Jack or Steve, the work just wasn't there. But Stan was no Bob Kane, claiming credit for work long after he was involved. He is arguably just as responsible for the success of his creations as his collaborators, something that cannot be said for Kane, whose Burbone's description of Batman bore little resemblance to what the character ultimately became. Stan is just as responsible for who Spider-Man is as Steve Ditko. He gave his artist name checks in most of his interviews, although it was these self-same interviews where Stan would be credited as the sole creator that many people point to when wanting to play down Lee's contributions. He also wasn't always good at correcting mistakes. Stan didn't co-create either Doctor Strange or Captain America, and Stan's favourite supplementary character, the Silver Surfer, wouldn't exist at all if not for Jack Kirby. But good luck finding Kirby getting a created by credit on that character, and if there was a Doctor Strange created by Steve Ditko credit on the Doctor Strange movie, I must have blinked. Still, this ignores what Stan did bring to the characters. The humour, the hang-ups, the humanity. John Romita brought a lot to the book as well. In Steve's hands, Peter Parker was often unlikable and selfish, although he fought those instincts when he spotted them in himself. Romita toned down those elements. Arguably, those elements made Peter more relatable, more human, more realistic. A hero isn't a hero if he has no flaws. He's boring. A hero overcomes his flaws. Under Ramita, the stories became more supervillain-heavy. Peter became more handsome and not as gangly. Gwen and Murray Jane were far more beautiful than they would have been, or in Gwen's case were, under Ditko's pencil. The Stan Lee-John Ramita paradigm was more in keeping with a, a young man rather than a boy. And this adds rather than detracts. I still relate to Peter Parker more than any other fictional character. 
I was a little standoffish as a teenager, occasionally arrogant and a smart ass. I lived with my grandparents, not my parents. I too only really came out of my shell in college and in my early 20s. I met completely different people in college than in high school, just like Peter did. He felt real, and that's down to Stan. It's hard sometimes to acknowledge that Peter isn't for me anymore. I'm in my 40s now. I relate to Columbo and Inspector Morse far more than I do to a teenager. I prefer the Peter of Spider-Girl now. Older, wiser, tad grey at the temples, but, but still recognisably the same good man. But I see the response kids have to the Tom Holland Spider-Man movies and the cartoons, and I smile. And wherever they are, I hope Stan and Steve do too. Hi, I'm Mike Staley, and I want to welcome you to check out my new podcast, Mike's Geek World. No element of geek culture is off the table for this podcast, whether you're into Marvel, DC, anime, pro wrestling, My Little Pony, Star Wars, Star Trek, Doctor Who, Japanese horror, American horror, football, movies, music, kaiju films, Super Sentai, Monster. Check out Mike's Geek World on Apple Podcasts and at mikesgeekworld.podomatic.com. Comedy, parody, light novels, fantasy, dragons. Okay, let's have a check through the email. Well, the first one isn't actually an email. It's a, a social media message. I don't normally do social media messages because I record these with such a gap between actually releasing them that I forget to go back and check the social media or I forget what people said about the episode because as I record this I've only just released the Roger Moore episode so I'm three four weeks down the line but Anthony Rooney sent me a message about the time tunnel episode and I thought it was really good great show Andrew says Anthony I very much enjoyed it Back in 1968, I suspect the pipe-smoking old fuddy-duddies at the BBC felt they could justify buying the time tunnel because of the historical element. It was only when kids started writing into junior points of view to point out some of the historical and scientific howlers that someone realised the show didn't quite measure up to Rethian values. Thankfully, ITV were not quite so fussy. Speaking of which, I think only LWT, which was London Weekend Television, started its 1970 run with Massacre, Idol of Death was pulled because of a contractual dispute with one of the guest stars. Can't tell you which one, although I have tried to find out. The episode was last seen on Sky back in the 1980s, shortly after the satellite channel first launched. Then it disappeared for a long time, until it was finally reinstated in reruns. So whatever the problem was, it was ironed out. Likewise, Raiders from Outer Space disappeared for quite a while because there was no print of acceptable broadcast quality available. Even now you can see problems with the current print, which has lines running down the screen in some of the early scenes. See, all that's quite fascinating to me, which is why this message stuck in my head. I am genuinely interested in stuff like that. I'm generally interested in in broadcast history of stuff and how things are changed for certain markets, like over here... Uh, there were three Star Trek episodes that the BBC did not show until the 1990s. They didn't outright ban them, but they just didn't show them. And Miri, a first season episode of Star Trek, was only ever shown once in 1970 before it was rerun again in the 1990s. So there's a huge gap there. So the fact that there is um, an episode of a show that doesn't reach broadcast standards, how does that happen? How does one episode become so weak or, or so damaged? That's fascinating to me. 
As goofy as the episode is, being a time tunnel fanatic, perhaps the only time tunnel fanatic, I'm just glad to have it back. Well, thank you, Anthony. That was quite fascinating information uh, about the show. Uh, The information that the show came back in 1970 with the episode Massacre came from, and let me just get the title of the book right, The Encyclopedia of TV Science Fiction by Roger Fulton, which went through a number of different editions. I think... I've got the second edition. I think there was a third edition that had Farscape on the cover, but I've never been able to track down a copy for a reasonable price. So uh, there is an updated version. But that's a treasure trove of information, particularly of British air dates. It's really easy to find information about American air dates and, you know, stuff like that, because that's all that the internet's full of. But British air dates are often a law unto themselves and quite fascinating. Quite fascinating to look at the British air dates. Like, again, we'll go back to Star Trek. We started our running of Star Trek with Where No Man Has Gone Before with the actual pilot episode. But then we ran them in any old order after that. So it, it's quite interesting. Anyway, I do have an email as well. Gene Hendricks has emailed in. Hello, Gene. Hello, Andy. I just listened to your Star Trek novelization episode, which was really good timing, as I'm reading those for the first time. There are some really big shocks in them, like Peter Preston being 14, as well as some inconsistencies, like you mentioned. I can look at this like I look at Arthur C. Clarke's monolith books, which, according to Clarke, occur each in their own parallel universe. Once that hurdle is overcome, I really like how the books add to the movies. Knowing about the conflict between Preston and Scotty and Preston's connection to Savick is not necessary to enjoy the film, but it makes the death of Preston all the more heart-wrenching. Like you, I think the novelisation to The Voyage Home is the low point, and that's due to what you mentioned. The comedy doesn't translate to the book. The main problem here, for me anyway, is that the comedy doesn't work on screen. You see, The Forge Home is my least favourite of the original cast films. Yes, I like The Final Frontier more than I like The Voyage Home. And that's because The Voyage Home is jokey for the sake of being jokey. Yes, the TV show had humour episodes like The Trouble with Tribbles and A Piece of the Action, but there were bits of humour in there that worked with the shows. There was no double dumbass on you or that are the nuclear vessels moments. That kind of thing was just too forced in the movie and falls completely flat in the novelisation. Of course, as with most things, your mileage may vary, so this could translate well for someone out there. Gene, host of shit-tons of podcasts, the Hammer Strikes and the Hammer Podcast and the Quantum Cast and Anime Freaks and all that stuff. It was lovely to hear from you, Gene. Um, yeah, I don't disagree with you about The Voyage Home. One, I've, I think I've done a show, an episode of this show before, my top ten favourite Star Treks, and The Trouble with Trouble doesn't trouble that top ten at all. I, in fact, I think... A piece of the action, as you mentioned. But I also think By Any Other Name is a funnier episode than Tribbles. Tribbles suffers from the same thing to me that The Voyage Home suffers from. The humour is forced. It's like David Gerald wrote a sitcom called Star Trek rather than a drama series called Star Trek with humour in it. Gene Kuhn, Dorothy Fontana, these were writers that could incorporate humour into Star Trek while still remembering that it was a serious dramatic show. Um, and some of the next generation did that as well, particularly Brent Spiner's bits as data. They were genuinely funny, but it was it wasn't a comedy. And I think the Voyage Home is responsible for the Final Frontier having some of the problems that it has, because they reacted to the fact that the last one was funny and did well at the box office, and they forced 
the final frontier to have some shitty humor in it as well which really doesn't work at all in the final frontier i mean at least the voyage home does raise a, a smile every now and again with some of its most subtle gags but the the final frontier te- teeters over a little bit but that being said i still think that the final frontier is a more enjoyable episode of star trek than the voyage home is for many of the reasons that you mentioned Okay, thank you, Gene. Thank you, Anthony. If you want to email in, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. I hope you enjoyed this epic trek through Stanley's work on Spider-Man. I hope I didn't miss anything. I don't think I did, but if I did, let me know. And maybe I'll squeeze it into another episode. I'll do a special edition of this and sandwich it on at the end and re-upload it and no one will ever know. I'll be George Lucas. Um, So hopefully I'll see you next time. No idea what's coming up now. The sky's the limit as Captain Picard once said. So take care, stay safe, I'll see you all real soon. Goodbye.